Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the very talented Neve Algar on her new movie, Censor, which takes place in the era of the video nasty. Mark Royal reviews the spooky new thriller The Night House and some other movies too. Plus, we pay tribute to the wonderful Gene Wilder. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Huge reaction to last week's show where me and Mark Royal nominated and talked about our favourite movie endings of all time. Uh, Two takeaways, and I said this the last time we did a special show, you'd like us to do more of those kind of shows. So we will. Maybe the October bank holiday weekend we will revisit something. And of course, many people upset about all the movies we didn't include but there, there just simply isn't time I'm afraid but we got a huge reaction to it and thank you for everyone who texted who tweeted who emailed we do read them all I think about them all I put them into the great cauldron of my mind and I do we read them all from from start to finish be they long or short and uh, thank you all uh, lots of people were enjoying it TG Cahar tweeted the ending of With Nail and I and the great monologue by Richard E. Grant, I have of late, wherefore I know not, lost all of my mirth, where he's quoting Hamlet. That was a great one. Lorraine Keane was in touch. She was reminded how powerful The Empire Strikes Back actually is when you hear that speech, when you hear Darth Vader telling Luke, who his daddy actually is. Megan was in touch, just to bring you one or two. Love the ending of the movie Before Midnight. To me, it's beautiful. The couple go back in the time machine, reenact the epic scene when they met on the train in the first movie, in the original movie, which was, of course, Before Sunrise. At this stage, they are married and frustrated and have lost the spark, but I love how real it is. Well, thank you for that, Megan. A lot of other people were in touch. I think mostly agreeing with me saying that Mark Ryle was wrong when he mentioned the ending of the Shawshank Redemption and how he put his cards on the table and said he just thinks the Shawshank Redemption is only all right and doesn't quite get the fuss. But most people kind of agreed with me. And there was all sorts of nominations. People mentioned Fight Club as a great movie ending, The Killing Fields, Inception, all sorts of movies. The Third Man, which we briefly mentioned. Loads and loads of reaction to that. And finally, we also, in last week's show, were discussing the end of Lost in Translation. And it seems, you know, I thought I was a pervert because I was saying to Mark how I thought Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson's characters were verging on, you know, turning it romantic. and he didn't think so at all but most of you saw that as well so I mean I may still be a pervert but in terms of that movie most of you agreed with what I was thinking about it but it was great fun and uh, thank you for everyone who got in touch about the screen time best movie endings special that we did last week and I mentioned Bill Murray he's in town he's making a golf series for YouTube and he's been all over Ireland spotted everywhere he met someone in a hotel this week who had a tattoo of him How strange that must be. Someone coming up to you with a tattoo of yourself on. That must be weird. But I'm sure if any man can handle it, Bill Murray can. And you know what? If I don't have any tattoos, I'm unadorned that way. They wouldn't improve me. But, you know, there's worse tattoos to have than a Bill Murray one. Absolutely. I've seen a lot worse than Bill Murray ones. So I won't tell you my Bill Murray story again where I met him. 
serving him a drink in a country club because it's a really boring story. And if you're a regular listener, you'll heard it before. Uh, but Bill Murray is, is, I think, still in town at the time of talking to you. So, Bill, you know, if you've got the radio on, we're big fans of you here on this show. Now, I was kind of in and out of action this week because I was on the Aran Islands and uh, sunning myself and having a little downtime. So I'm slightly behind on TV. So I only caught up with a fantastic new TV show that I want to tell you about called Deceit, which started last Friday on Channel 4. But all four episodes are available now on the all four player app thingy. They're all downloadable on your basic TV package. Deceit is a kind of based on extensive research and interviews and tells the story of a, a real life event where there was a horrific murder of a lady called Rachel Nickel back in the early 90s in London. And it outraged people and rightly so. Her little child was present with her when it happened. I think he was only two. Horrific stuff. And they had a chief suspect and they deployed a honey trap, uh, basically an undercover female cop to you know, in essence, seduce him or begin a romantic affair with him. And they've reenacted this in a certain sense. It's a fictionalized drama and things have been changed, but it's based on, you know, this real case and, and by all accounts, extensive research and interviews. And Neve Algar, who we're talking to later in the show, gives a brilliant performance. She's playing this undercover cop who's attempting to draw out a killer but she has her doubts about what she's doing this is also the early 90s and a female cough is finding it hard in a very male dominated organization that she was in at the time neve algar's character is really stretched by this assignment and is questioning the ethics of it but is also doing the best she can and is deeply committed to it despite the reservation she has about it she is absolutely brilliant in it, and it is a gripping piece of drama. It's called Deceit. It is wonderful. Uh, I don't want to go on too much about it because there are all sorts of things that happen in it. But if you're looking for some meaty television, and I mean meaty television, that will keep you watching and, you know, say to your significant other or, or to yourself, if you happen to be on the couch by yourself, let's just watch one more. Deceit is definitely it. Now, talking of Neve Algar, I had the chance to talk to her before I'd actually seen Deceit about this. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, Enid. I'm cutting it. Butchery, sadism, murder. A wave of depraved and corrupt horror video. Confusing fiction with reality. Doug Smart, producer, ident investment films. Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this film. There's this actress. I've got this feeling that's Nina. My sister. You know, if someone did take her, then there's still out there. You've never been clear on exactly what you remember. You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth. Someone's losing the plot. Yeah, now that's a clip from a new movie that is in cinemas this Friday, the 20th of August, called Censor, in which Neve Algar plays a film censor or a video censor. It's taking place in the age of the video nasty. Uh, younger listeners may not remember, but I suppose in the mid-80s, there was a whole thing about these kind of B-grade movies that were 
gory kind of crap a lot of them quite misogynistic that were banned or, or, or were often banned and you kind of got them under the counter and the video nasty became this thing i remember as a kid being very curious about them i didn't see them you know one or two of them till years later and you wonder what all the fuss was because they actually weren't particularly good movies anyway this movie takes place in england and thatcher's britain during that era and Neve Algar plays a lady called Enid, who is a young film censor. And she appears quite prim and proper, and she's spending her days watching these god-awful movies. But she has some trauma in her own past, and some of that involves a missing sister. I won't say much more than that. And she encounters a movie that seems to bear really scary parallels to what might have happened to her sister and her life slowly unravels and the movie becomes a very creepy horror movie which is wonderfully atmospheric and really evokes 80s Britain and as I say kind of dovetails then into a, a really creepy atmospheric horror movie and a psychological drama of sorts. It's a really, again, I said meaty just before but it's it's a meaty movie and a really good horror movie i've said before on this show horror doesn't often do it for me but of late i've been surprised and censor certainly does it for me which is in cinemas this friday as i said now neve algar plays enid neve algar has been on this show every year since it started a lot of people know her from cam with horses she's recently just finished the second series which we're all awaiting ridley scott's raised by wolves she was in the excellent tv show the virtues a couple of years ago which I rave about at every hand's turn you know it you could say Neve Algar is a rising star but I think her, her star has well and truly risen and she's one of the hardest working actresses around and I got to talk to her about censor recently so Neve, you know you're getting old when you start saying to people you're too young to remember but I remember <laughs> but I remember video nasties because I'm a 45 year old man like when I was 10 a man used to come around to where I lived in Blanchestown and in the back of his VHS van, you could get video nasties. And I was intrigued by them. And I, I don't think I ever even saw one until I was like 20 years older or whatever. But you probably don't actually remember them growing up in Mullingar, do you? No, no. This, this film was an education into the video nasty world. And so did you have to, the torture or the intrigue of going back to watch video nasties for this? Yes, I was given a watch <laughs> list by the director Prano. Um, to go and watch as, uh, you know, as, as specific references. Um, yeah, that was, that was an interesting, some of them are, some of them are great and some of them are just hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Do they, not to get all heavy, but I, I mean, they also seem quite misogynistic, a lot of them. Yeah, hugely. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know why I'm laughing, but it's just, <laughs> it's just the thoughts of you having to troll through them, you know? I think, yeah, when you're, especially, with the current climate that we're in now, when we were addressing, um, you know, how women were treated and how were they were objectified and still. Um, so to have that 21st century kind of gaze mm -hmm. upon what, what, how women were objectified back then is, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's quite, it's quite a hard watch. Yeah. You also spent time with an actual censor, is that right? Someone who worked in the business back in the 80s. Yeah, Carl Pulaski, who was a film censor back then, um, I was able to contact her and kind of 
ask her as many questions as I could about what her job entailed and how, you know, the struggles that she would have faced. You know, just the idea of someone sitting in a dark screening room for hours on end yeah. watching content that you have to feel is going to be um, appropriate for viewership. And it's not mm. going to be, you know, it's not going to be Disney movies. It's going to be heavy content mm. and how that would have a psychological effect on someone. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. And, you know, your character, uh, Enid, she's fascinating because she, there's this crazy journey in a way because she ends up someone a lot different than I thought she was going to be at the start. And it barely looked like you because I was going, is that? Oh, yeah. OK, now I get it. And you had the, the glasses with the string on it, which is a real giveaway of being the 1980s. But was that kind of the appeal for you that she was so not multi-layered, but there was a real arc to her story. In this. Yeah, when you read a story where you can't, as you said, you can't, I never saw that ending coming. Mm -hmm. And where she where she starts the movie and where she ends is this complete 180. Yeah. And in such a short space of time as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, she goes on such a, such a transformation. Um, and to present um, a vision of someone who is suffering with psychological distortion that we have never, like I felt I could never seen represented before on screen and given the opportunity to sh show something to the audience that they hadn't seen before is, is so exciting. Yeah, but it's a brilliant ending. It really is. Did you get, get to the end page and go, man, that's the, or woman, that's the way to end a film. Yeah, yeah. And Good. just the- Don't worry, we won't spoil it. I we're not gonna spoil it, but he, just the way in which Prano has, the, you know, the formatting changes that, you know, we shot this yes. on film. And when we, we when you, we spent about two weeks or 10, 10 days, I think it was shooting nights in the forest and the, the joy of, I suppose, working with, with film is it has a beautiful film look to it. And then when we, when we had to go to the forest, just because of lighting, uh, we change over to, to, to digital and the, the formatting then changes. Mm -hmm. So, I can't wait to actually see this on a large screen because I think there's so many layers and, and so much detail that is injected for someone who is into cinema, but also mm. it's just so visually satisfying for an audience. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a real look of the 1980s about it in, in yeah. a good way that that's really well done. You know, you mentioned Prano. I was talking to a female director about three weeks ago. This isn't a name drop for a new Netflix horror trilogy called Fear Street. And her name is Lee Janica or Janika. And I assumed when I got it, when they offered me this interview and I saw Lee that it was a man. And I said this to her and she wasn't annoyed or anything, but it, it's because a lot of traditionally horror has been the you know, domain of men. She seems like a, a fascinating female director uh, who's this is her first feature. Were you kind of, what was the working relationship like with her? And was it, was there any sense of you're the lead, she's the female director, that this was a, a woman's movie in a very male dominated business traditionally when it comes to horror? It was the first time I'd worked on a, on a film set where so many of the heads of the department were women. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't done in, it wasn't done in a purposeful way. It was just, yeah. these were the people who were the best for the job. And this is, 
it didn't feel like Prano was making her debut feature. I felt like I was working with someone who was 20 years in the business mm -hmm. and someone who was incredibly confident, but she is, her energy, Prano's energy as a director is so infectious on set. She is so kind and, and giving, um, and it's, it, it makes, made me want to work harder as an actor because when someone is, is so present and giving in a scene, you, it, it makes you meet them the full way. You know, you're not just yeah. sitting back and letting them do the, do the work for you. And, um, and to be on a set where, you know, she's working with her best friend or Annika Somerson was a, it was the DOP on it. So to see that dynamic and the, the shorthand that they have with each other, it's so beautiful to watch. And, um, and it's great to see that the response that she's had um, mm -hmm. from this movie. And since then, you know, she's, she's, she's working with the producers of Call Me By Your Name on, on this new project, What We Lost in the Fire. And she's gonna, like, this is, I think everyone has their, their style and this is very much a Prano Bailey Bond film. And mm -hmm. when people watch it, they'll understand what that means. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's, it's fascinating to see what she might do next. Talking of which, I realized when I went back through something that this is the third year in a row that I've spoken to you. Uh, and you know, God, you're sticking me, John. <laughs> come, come, come. This is come. the annual catch up. <laughs> exactly. How are things? No, but it's a testament to lots of things. But, you know, as you know, as well as anyone, this is a very fragile business and people spend, mm. you know, as I, I forget who it was, but they said actors invented unemployment. You know, you've mm. been working solidly as, as far as I can tell for the last three years. Have you felt very busy over those last three years? Yeah, you get reminded that if you, you haven't stopped working whenever your mom's like, when are you going to come home? <laughs> when are you coming home for a bit? Um, but it's, you know, I, I spent a long, like I worked my ass off to get to a place where I can work consistently. Yes. Um, so it doesn't just happen overnight. I think no, people only not. begin to realize how much you're working when the, the, the work is beginning to, to come out and, but luckily I was very fortunate that I worked just after the pandemic and through the next kind of lockdown to see the channel four series that's coming out soon is that was the first production that went back post lockdown. And that was kind okay. of like the, that was, that was pretty much the, the guinea pig of, of, of how TV was going to be able to function under the new COVID regulations. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's it's lovely to to see the work and and to see the the responses into the projects that I care about so much. Yeah, yeah. And one of those projects which I know you care about, and the first time I think I was talking to you, you were just back from filming in South Africa, I think in the desert with a big uh, someone you admire a lot, Ridley Scott, Raised by Wolves. Have you been heartened by the response the first series has got? Because I know he's a huge director and, you know, a lot of stuff he touches turns go, but you, but you never know, you know, how these things, especially in the cruel world of TV, yeah. but it's been adored mostly by critics and more importantly, people who actually watch TV. So I presume the reception for it has pleased you somewhat. Yeah, it's, it, it's so amazing to see how something that's, visually very bold and different mm. has 
has resonated with people because ultimately when you pitch an idea of these you know two androids that are tasked with raising human children people automatically go okay that's sci-fi that's not for me but ultimately at the center of it it's a story about family yeah and when you when you connect that it's 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 amazing because my mom <laughs> obviously my mom watches everything I do but she's like she's fully invested in the Raise My World's universe and you know she would never have gone and watched something something like sci-fi um <laughs> but you know Ridley Scott has he he's someone who goes and does something like sci-fi but then will go and do a period drama yeah. um and commits and and he's you know he's visionary because he's he's bold he he yeah. takes he takes he takes big chances on the fact that he knows that he he's incredibly confident of what he does and he works with amazing teams um and Aaron Gavanowski our series creator he he just fell in love with that script because he hadn't seen it represented before on screen mm. and series two do we know when we'll be likely to see that or sometime I've just returned back from Cape Town so okay. <laughs> I couldn't tell you I'm that's above my pay grade <laughs> okay okay fair enough well said and come here you brought Mammy up is it true you were mowing her grass in the middle of lockdown in Mullingar I was mowing the lawn yes <laughs> yeah. sorry mowing the lawn that sounded weird yes <laughs> I just wasn't sure you know I believe everything yeah, how did that go for you know, this? my family yeah. keeps me incredibly grounded they um they, yeah. don't, they don't take me seriously as an actor um they well, it's just good you know it reminds you that you're you're um the youngest of five kids and you're still the youngest of five kids yeah exactly it's important to remember that and tell me this uh you know i i, I talked to you every time i've spoken to you before i i talked to you about the virtues so i don't want to go down that route again but i am just to remind you, evangelical about that show. And I tell everyone who listened to me that they should watch it because one of the best pieces of TV ever. So I just want to say that. I'm not even going to ask you about it because I'm disgusted ad nauseum, but I adore that show. But another movie that I adored uh, was Cam with Horses. And that literally came out here for a week, I think it was. Then the shit hit the fan. and But it still found a life. Uh, it's been on mm. Netflix. It got back into the cinemas for a long run when they opened again. I saw it even again in some other cinemas, like a year later here in Ireland, people wanted to see it again. So despite the headaches of this dreaded virus, it still found a life that it, yeah. it, it mightn't have had, you know, just because this pandemic, you must be pleased about that as well, because it's traveled far and wide. Absolutely. You know, we, it was devastating and it was heartbreaking for, to, to watch, cause you know, this was Nick Rowland, the producer's debut feature film and to not have that option, to not have that opportunity to see your movie in, in the cinemas and for people to be able to go and see it. You know, we were, obviously it was the, the start of the pandemic, but the love it received online, I, I hadn't seen something like that for a project that I was involved in. Um, and I think, as you said, streaming services and has given the opportunity for people to access films that they perhaps they wouldn't have gone to see in, mm. in the cinema. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I better wrap now, but I do think Censor should be seen in the cinema because it's a real cinematic movie. And, you know, you're the hardest working woman. I guess the James Brown of the Irish film industry, <laughs> the hardest working woman in the Irish movie business. It's lovely to talk to you again and continued success. Thanks, John. This has been lovely. Yeah, Neve Algar there talking to me about, well... Working hard, uh, and of course, her new movie, Censor, which is a really good, creepy horror movie all about video nasties. It's on release in cinemas this Friday, the 20th of August. Up next, Mark Ryle on the week's new releases. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to this week's new releases. We're going to be reviewing a spooky new psychological horror called The Night House. And also, People Just Do Nothing Big in Japan. The BBC the BBC Three mockumentary gets its feature debut. I'm joined by our resident critic, the man, the legend, Mark Ryle. How are you, sir? Hey, John. How's it going? Very well. So let's start with The Night House. Uh, I've seen this as well because I think it's a pretty decent movie and I want to start positively. It is a very decent movie. Yeah, I describe it as a, a pleasingly creepy horror. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Case closed. See ya. No, okay, let's, ex- week. <laughs> let's explain a bit to our listeners. Rebecca Hall is living by a lake. Over to yeah. you. She, uh, Rebecca Hall plays Beth. She's a recently widowed uh, school teacher and Beth lives in this house with lots of windows that look right out onto a boating lake where her husband, Owen, has uh, shot himself just a week prior. And uh, Owen not only built the house himself, but it's also filled with reminders of his present presence. And then one night, Beth hears a loud banging in the middle of the night. And the next morning, she finds some muddy footprints leading from the house to the lake where her husband killed himself. And then over successive nights, they become increasingly more eventful. But I suppose the question is, is it all in her head or is something more sinister at play? Yeah. Is she possibly being haunted by maybe even her dead husband? And we should say it kind of the, whatever's going on causes her to look a bit into her husband's past. Uh, and and that, her own past. Indeed. And it all gets quite intriguing. It does. Yeah. There's a, there's a tension between um, psychological horror and supernatural horror. Mm. And, you know, the question is, is it all in her head? Is she just having very, very lucid dreams um, or, uh, are, are these malevolent visions that she's having a result of her fragile mental state or is there a genuine uh, metaphysical presence at play here? And I'm, I'm happy to say that the nice house doesn't hedge its bets and this is a question that is definitively answered. Um, and at a certain point, I think there's a, sh- a shift in tone um, where things move from the suggestion of the supernatural to something else entirely. And it, it, it very much worked for me, I think. Yeah. And we should say, I think what really binds it all together is Rebecca Hall is brilliant yeah. as this, I guess, troubled soul. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, there's there's layers to the character of mm. Beth. And obviously, as a just widowed individual with with very weird things happening to her, she's she's in a very raw emotional state. But there is there is more than one thing going on Mm. with this character. And in terms of uh, stereotypical stock horror characters, she is something of an anomaly because she's she's fearless. She kind of runs towards the noises in the dark. Yeah, she she keeps going when she finds what's there. 
I guess that's the interesting conceit. She's running towards the horror because she's worried there's horror in this man she was married to in his past that she needs yeah. to confront. So you're right, it's very well done. What I also really like is, and maybe it's a, a trope, I don't know if there's that many movies, but set on a lake. I like the, the setting of it, this house on a yeah. lake with only a few houses surrounding her. I thought that was a nice way of doing it. It is, yeah. There's the, the kind of windows that faces looking at. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it, I, I suppose on one level, it's, it's only natural to look at it from uh, the Scooby-Doo perspective. You know, <laughs> you think, is there some is there somebody doing this to her? And on that level, you know, um, there's only really two supporting characters. So the, yeah. the suspect list is a bit is a bit light. Um, yeah. There's the, the friendly neighbor who's played by Vondi Curtis Hall. And then there's her protective best friend who's played by... Um, Sarah Goldberg from 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 Barry, um, but that's it. And it's a, yeah, it's mainly just um, you know, it's Rebecca Hall's show, and she's as I said, she's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, you're giving this a big thumb thumbs up as as I am because because I really enjoyed it and really entertained by it, and and mm. you know, good few scare moments. I jumped a few times. I was watching it alone in the dark one night, and you know, yeah. I'm pretty brave, as you know. Like I mean, you see my haircut, so you know, really? I take things on the chin. But I, a few jumps, you know. So, what would you say, stars wise? Um, I'm going to give it three and a half because I okay. think it, it really creeped me out in a good way, and just before I finish, there are there are some really clever effects mm. that were that 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 are achieved. They're, they're done through framing and, and clever placement of the camera, um, and they do really creep you out. You know, yeah, it's that it, thing that you've seen in the corner of your eye, and then it's gone when you look back. Yeah, no, you're right. Actually, I'd forgotten about that. There's the very good camera techniques with with the scares and all. They were really mm. cleverly done, and and not that you would expect it but there was no cgi or anything they were just well put together scares uh three and a half yeah i'd give it three and a half i'd verge towards four maybe but possibly not but three and a half i think is a pretty decent score the night house it's in cinemas from this friday the 20th of august let's take a quick clip do you guys believe in ghosts i think there's something in my house my husband took the boat out on the lake he took a a handgun that I didn't even know that we owned, and... Did he leave a note? He did. You were right. There is nothing. Nothing is after you. You're safe now. You said you were safe? Safe from one. Yes, that was The Night House, which is in cinemas this Friday, the 20th of August, and me and Mark gave it three and a half thoroughly enjoyable, scary, psychological horror movie starring Rebecca Hall. Something very different is People Just Do Nothing Big in Japan, which of course is the feature debut of a, a, a TV show about a, a gang of pirate DJs uh, called Corrupt FM. Isn't that right, Mark? That's right. Yeah, it was BBC Three. Um, I think it ran for, it started off on YouTube and then I think there might have been five series. But yeah, this is the the feature film uh, and it is about a an underachieving garage crew and uh, an ex-pirate radio station called Corrupt FM. And the radio station has been shut down three years prior and Corrupt FM have gone their separate ways. But in the interim, um, this Japanese TV show is using one of uh, their two songs, and they now have an opportunity to travel to Japan 
with their useless manager in tow and to cash in on their unexpected success. And I suppose while the opportunity of selling out presents itself, uh, Corrupt FM lose sight of what's important before ultimately remembering who they are and what matters. And everyone grows and they go home. Okay, so there's emotional growth in this kind of comedy? So so much emotional growth. Okay, well, uh, regular listeners will know from the tone of your voice, uh, you're leading up to saying possibly you didn't find this that entertaining. I didn't. Um, it's done in that that mockumentary style of other BBC Three comedies like The Office and, and This Country, stuff mm. like that. And I suppose as it's a mockumentary about a band, it's it's difficult to avoid comparisons with Spinal Tap. And yeah. Spinal Tap, it is not. Yeah, because it, the jokes it, just aren't there? It's at best big in Japan. It's mildly amusing. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure I cracked a laugh once throughout the okay. whole thing. And the humor, um, it relies on the ineptitude of the characters, and it is very, very repetitive. Most of the jokes, as as they are, they're a variant of somebody saying or doing something stupid, and then somebody else giving a deadpan look down the camera, repeated over and over. And it has that ad lib style that I think is very, very difficult to pull off successfully. Yeah. And as as it is, I think the script is quite weak. It's just not funny, or at least not funny enough, often enough. And is there a lot of jokes made out of the fish out of water? Here are these guys from Brentford and they're now in Japan eating sushi or whatever. There's a fair amount of it. I mean, they take their shoes off constantly, whether it's appropriate or not. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, as I said, it's mildly amusing. I think this is definitely one for the fans. I think if you're a fan of people Mm -hmm. just do nothing already, then you will probably enjoy it. But um, if you're not, it's going to be a struggle. And I'm not sure if there is actually enough fans of people just do nothing to justify <laughs> this. Well, it's funny. I was going to say, because, you know, obviously I'm in the movie and TV business and yeah. I was only vaguely aware of the whole yeah. corrupt FM people just do nothing thing. Yeah. And often if something's very funny, you know, it'll have filtered down to me in yeah. some fashion, like funny or die or between two ferns. Do you know what I yeah. mean? You you will... You will but- Word will come to you, and word hadn't really come to me of this. Yeah. So, but you yeah. were vaguely aware of it. I think yeah. most people will be will be vaguely aware of it. Yeah. I think ever since on the buses went on holiday back in 1973, <laughs> there's there's a long tradition of of you know turning successful TV shows into a movie, and it it's rarely a successful transition. Yeah. If you, no. if you look at almost anything from David Brent on the road to Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, absolutely fabulous. The movie, take your pick. To my, for my money, none of them work. And I agree with you in the last two. I think David Brent, Life on the Road worked. I, I laughed a lot at that, I have to say, because I thought they were trying to do something slightly different. But Fair enough. I think that might be personal bias on yeah. my part. Yeah. And of course, Ricky Gervais, a big fan of this show and former guest, you know, so I'm probably somewhat biased as well, you know. Okie dokie. <laughs> <laughs> One of those things is true where I said big fan of the show and previous guest on this show. So uh, okay. he was a previous guest. Yeah. Well, look, let's, uh, what, what are you going to say stars wise for people just do nothing big in Japan? Long title. I'm, I'm Yeah. Very long title. I'm sorry to say that it, it is pretty weak sauce and I'm going to give it a two. Give it a two. Okay. Well, people just do nothing big in Japan is in cinemas from again, this Friday, the 20th of August. Let's take a really quick clip. Corrupt FM was one of the biggest pirate radio stations in the whole of Brentford, yeah? Right. Like, well, it was the only one in Brentford. It was the only one in Brentford, that's what yeah. I mean, so it was the biggest. 
It's not easy managing Quran. Any sane manager would have quit a long time ago, but not me. But apparently their music is being used on a TV show in Japan. It's bloody batshit mental, mate. That was a clip of People Just Do Nothing. Big in Japan. Mark only gave it a lukewarm too. I haven't seen it, but it sounds like I'm not missing much. Mark, just really quickly then, I want to keep you there. You know, I don't want to talk too much more about Sensor because I spent a long time with Neve earlier in the show. People start thinking I'm on a retainer, but you did see Sensor. I uh, did. Too. I really liked it. I know you're a horror fan. What did you think of Sensor quickly? It's fantastic. I mean, it's very much in my wheelhouse and it really brought me back to, you know, trying to find uh, the driller killer in, in, in the first uh, <laughs> uh video video yeah. libraries as they were they were probably a part of a you know a part of the news agents back in the day yeah we, um, were, we were talking about that yeah so yeah, yeah 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 and it just it, you know you can smell the cigarettes and, and hairspray you know? <laughs> yeah it's, it's very very much an 80s movie if you had to give sensor stars Oh, it, I don't know. I'll give it a four maybe. But Good man. Uh, it just like, it's fantastic. Go and see it, please. Yeah, in the cinema. It's a very cinematic movie, despite the fact that it's about VHS, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Great. Well, listen, you've worked hard. You've played hard. Uh, thank you. And we'll talk next week. Thanks, John. Up next, a little tribute to Gene Wilder. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. I'm John Fardy. Now, Gene Wilder passed away on the 29th of August 2016. So this Sunday will mark the fifth anniversary of his passing. I, for one, and I think a lot of you agree, absolutely adored Gene Wilder. He was quite simply unique. He had this he had this way about him that he just looked like your friend, I always thought. Uh, and he could be hysterical in movies, but he could be so sensitive, sincere, melancholic. He was just a unique kind of film presence. A couple of years ago, had the good fortune to put together a little piece for him on the Pat Kenny Show, a piece that was subsequently nominated for an award. Come, come, who's counting such things? But I thought, with your permission, I'd bring you a little remembrance, if that's even a word, of the great Gene Wilder. I'm so glad you could come. This is going to be such an exciting day. I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. Gene Wilder was quite simply one of the most unique comedy actors ever to appear on screen. He had a neurotic, often crazed persona that made audiences howl. Hysterical! I'm having hysterics! I'm hysterical! I can't stop when I get like this! Let's get out of here. Come on, Silver. Harry, I'm freaking. Get up. So long, suckers. Hey, Harry. He thinks he's a horse. Help me. What's your name? Well, my name is Jim, but most people call me... Jim. Wilder was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1933 and was the son of a Russian-Jewish immigrant, his birth name being Jerome Silberman. Wilder was often bullied due to both his Jewishness and his mild childhood chubbiness. But the defining person in his life was his mother. And when she got sick, everything changed. I was uh, eight or nine years old, and my mother had a heart attack. And when she came home, the doctor said, don't ever get into an argument with your mother because you might kill her. The second thing he said was, 
try to make her laugh. I had never consciously tried to make anyone laugh in my life. But I did from then on, and I knew I was a success when she peed in her pants. <laughs> and so a desire to perform and get laughs was born. He had an unhappy time in school and later at a military academy. But he had become enthralled by the theatre and studied in the Old Vic in the UK, but was promptly drafted into the US Army for two years, during which time he worked as a medic in Pennsylvania. Wilder moved to New York, where he took a variety of odd jobs, including a position as a fencing teacher to support himself while studying acting. He soon realised that he couldn't quite see a marquee reading Jerry Silberman as Macbeth and took the stage name Gene Wilder. His mother's name was Jean, incidentally. After various off-Broadway roles, he had a minor role in Bonnie and Clyde playing an undertaker. Such small roles weren't going to set his career on fire, and after a few years of kind of wilderness acting, he finally got a call from a guy he'd met years ago who said he'd love to cast him in a screenplay he was working on. That guy was Mel Brooks, and the movie was The Producers. In the producers, a corrupt Broadway producer dreams of a play so bad that it will be a flop in a bid to keep all the investors' money. The fictional flop that they dream up is springtime for Hitler. Wilder played the neurotic accountant, Leopold Bloom, opposite Zero Mostel's producer. Wilder's manic intensity was something we hadn't seen before. It was also very funny. Estelle throws water at him. I'm wet! I'm wet! I'm hysterical and I'm wet! Then he slaps him. I'm in pain! And I'm wet! And I'm still hysterical! The producers didn't do well at the box office or with critics, but it became a cult favourite and is now rightly seen as a classic. Wilder got a Best Supporting Oscar nomination for his efforts and Mel Brooks won Best Screenplay. I'd also like to thank Zero Mostel. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. I'd also like to thank Gene Wilder. Thank you very much. En route to his next cinematic milestone, Wilder's career took a strange iris sojourn. He starred in the Dublin set Quaxer Fortune Has a Cousin in the Bronx. He played a poor Irish manure collector who falls in love with an American exchange student played by Margot Kidder. It's paddywhackery with a capital P. But you probably smile if you watched it today. This is my cousin Quaxer. He's a man with very special interests. In his autobiography, Kiss Me Like a Stranger, Wilder details a strange incident where during his time in Dublin, he grew close to one of the small children on the set 
and actually inquired about adopting him. The Irish government said, yes, I could adopt David, but I would have to wait two years before I could take him out of the country. He would have to keep his own name, and he would have to be raised as a Catholic. When I got over my anger with the Irish government, I took David for a picnic in the Wicklow Mountains, just the two of us, to find out if he would even want to come with me and live in America. After the most delicate probing, David said, No, I don't want to do that. And that was that. Despite that incident, Wilder's next movie project would endear him to children for the rest of his life. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look. In 1971, he gave a tour de force performance as Willy Wonka in the film adaptation of Roald Dahl's novel. Wilder was perfect as the mercurial genius chocolatier. He could be smart and funny. Don't you know what this is? My gum, it's gum! Wrong! It's the most amazing, fabulous, sensational gum in the whole world. What's so fab about it? This little piece of gum is a three-course dinner. Bull! No, roast beef, but I haven't got it quite right yet. But he could also be wonderfully heartfelt. So who can I trust to run the factory when I leave and take care of the Oompa Loompas for me? Not a grown-up. A grown-up would want to do everything his own way, not mine. That's why I decided a long time ago that I had to find a child, a very honest, loving child, to whom I can tell all my most precious candy-making secrets. But Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. What happened? He lived happily ever after. The magic of that movie lasts a lifetime. Again, Wonka wasn't a hit. But Wilder's next role proved that people were starting to notice how versatile and different he seemed. Woody Allen called him up and asked him to be in the comedy Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Too Afraid to Ask. Either you or Laurence Olivier to play this part, but in a leading female role, I'm going to use a sheep. He wanted someone who would play it straight. You know, get seduced by this good-looking sheep. I know this must all seem very strange to you. You from the hills of Armenia and me from Jackson Heights. And yet, I think it could work. Fall in love with a sheep for real. And I did. It was a cute sheep. Wilder reunited with Mel Brooks in 1974 for the spoof western Blazing Saddles. And the inspired lunacy of his trigger-happy Waco kid, burnt out at 29, helped create a hilarious worldwide hit. Since you are my guest and I am your host, what are your pledges? What do you like to do? Oh, I don't know. Play chess? Screw? Well, let's play chess. Wilder was now box office, and that same year, he and Brooks created the third great comedy masterpiece, the irrepressible Young Frankenstein, a fabulous parody of the Frankenstein story. Uh, would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry. I will not be angry. Abby, someone. Abby, someone. Abby, who? Abby, normal. Abby, normal. 
I'm almost sure that was the name. <laughs> Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long, 54 inch wide gorilla? This was the last movie he and Brooks made together, but his next cinematic partnership would be just as defining. Richard Pryor was the hottest comedian in America in the mid-70s, and pairing him with Wilder was inspired casting. Wilder spoke of their telepathic rapport, how they just understood each other comedically. They were the first proper interracial comedy duo. They first starred together in 1976 in the train-set comedy thriller Silver Streak. But perhaps Wilder and Pryor's greatest moments is where they're falsely convicted of robbery and end up in prison stir-crazy. Taking into account the severe and ruthless nature of this crime and the bleak prospects for your rehabilitation, I hereby sentence you to serve 125 years in the custody of the Commissioner of what? the Department of Corrections. What? 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 Wait, no, 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 sit, 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 sit. You know, we didn't do it. There's a misunderstanding. That's why. We didn't do it. We didn't. I didn't. Our lawyer uh, no, told us to come up. <laughs> He's joking. He means we didn't do it. See, we, we didn't I'm, do it. Have you got the right case? By this stage, Wilder had started to write and direct his own movies, like The World's Greatest Lover. These films that he directed and made by himself probably weren't as successful as the ones with Brooks or Richard Pryor, but there were still a lot of jokes in there. Is that what you're telling me? That he gets more excited than I? No, My on. brother gets more excited than I do. Not what I say. Is that what you're trying to tell me? No. You want to see excitement? No! I'll show you excitement if that's what you want to see. Oh, no, Philippe, you're much more excited than he is. Far better than Pierre. Better looking, a better horseman, everything. I like you, Philippe. I like you very much indeed. Thank you. You know, it's always good when we can talk these things out. That was the world's greatest lover. And by his own admission, Wilder certainly wasn't that. By the early 80s, he'd been married and divorced twice. But he found some redemption in his love life. In 1982, when he was casting females for his movie Hanky Panky, Gilda Radner was a comedian and actress who got the part in the movie and captured Wilder's heart. The feeling was mutual. On the first night of shooting... She got out of a car and said, hello, hello, and hello. And she told me about a year later that she cried all the way in to Manhattan from her home in Connecticut. I said, why? Were you nervous? She said, no. I knew I'd fall in love and get married to you. The lovely Gilda was also in the next movie he made, The Woman in Red. It didn't score well with the critics, but it had a great soundtrack. I just called to say I love you. Wilder's life took a turn for the worse when Gilda died of ovarian cancer in 1989. She'd been misdiagnosed 10 months before receiving treatment. Wilder channeled his energies into saving the hundreds of other Gildas out there, as he called them. In 1990, he established a Los Angeles Cancer Detection Center in her name. 
and later Gilda's clubs sprang up all over America. Yet Wilder found some respite from that tragedy in the most unusual of places. He teamed up again with Richard Pryor for the comedy See No Evil, Hear No Evil that saw him play a deaf man opposite Pryor's blind man when they both witness a murder. You're blind. Yes, I'm blind. How can I have the job? I had no idea. I'm sorry. Now you know. Can I get the job? You're really blind? Yes, I'm really blind, man. What are you, f***ing deaf? Yes, I'm f***ing deaf. You're deaf? Yes, I'm deaf. You really deaf? I'm really deaf. How do you know what I'm saying? Because I'm reading your lips. Now, do you want the job or don't you? Because I'm blind? Hey, shove it up your ass, pal. Wilder went to do some research on what it was like to be deaf, and he got more than he bargained for. I had my secretary make an appointment at the New York League for the Hard of Hearing with a Ms. Webb. I said, oh, God, my luck, I'm going to have an old New England biddy. <laughs> I was going to say, you're making fun of the, of the deaf? Out comes this vision in lavender and pink. He stayed married to Karen Webb until he died. In the 90s, Wilder stayed busy, but he drifted away from cinema. He did a season of his own NBC sitcom, but also began to paint and write novels. In 2013, he told an audience that contemporary cinema just really wasn't for him. But then I didn't want to do the kind of junk that I was seeing. I didn't want to do 3D, for instance. <laughs> I didn't want to do ones where it's just bombing and loud and swearing, so much swearing going on. Can't they just stop and talk, just talk? As many of you know, Wilder died from complications arising from Alzheimer's disease. He hadn't revealed details of his disease as he didn't want to upset any of his younger fans, of which he had many. Playing Willy Wonka, his character says, so shines a good deed in a weary world. The boy who kept his mother alive by being funny also gave laughter to millions in a weary world. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land. The common clay of the New West. You know. Morons. <laughs> I know to compare with pure imagination living there. Ah, yes, Gene Wilder, who passed away next Sunday, five years ago. That's the 29th of August. And uh, I thought you might enjoy that because I know a lot of you, like me, absolutely adored Gene Wilder. And he really lived a fascinating acting life it had to be said and I guess life in general as well that's it for this week my thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show just remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm enjoy the rest of your weekend and the week ahead and I will talk to you all next week